Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. We decided not to tell the kids. Marlon knew that once our three daughters understood that their mother had been given 1,000 days to live, they'd start counting. They would not be able to enjoy school, friends, their teams, or birthday parties. They'd be watching too closely how she looked, moved, acted, ate, or didn't. Marla wanted her daughters to stay children, unburdened, confident that tomorrow would look like yesterday. We threw everything at her disease, lectures, research, involvement in cancer organizations, yoga, meditation, teas, and soups. She even went to a storefront healer who lit incense, read her palm, and led her in prayer. He declared her a badass because of her restorative powers. It was a nickname that I promoted with all of her doctors and nurses because it was not only hopeful, but true. She didn't just buy time. She cheated it, squeezed months and years out of it. Marla was a statistical freak, an aberration, an outlier. 1,000 days landed firmly in her rearview mirror. That's John Melman. John is a New York City-based real estate executive. And this is a story of a devoted husband and wife making a painful choice to keep a shared secret from their children, a complex and challenging decision made in the name of love. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is a special bonus episode of Family Secrets. Joining me to talk about a show we recorded way back in season two of Family Secrets is the wise and thoughtful Dr. Ruth Faden. Ruth is the founder 
of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics and the Philip Franklin Wagley Professor of Biomedical Ethics at Johns Hopkins. Today, we'll be discussing The Loving Choice. I hope you'll go back to season two in the feed and listen to this heart-wrenching and profoundly moving human story. Ruth, thank you so much for joining me in conversation on Family Secrets. Of course, my pleasure. So the episode that I um, asked you to listen to, given your area of expertise as as a bioethicist, um, is The Loving Choice. And it's one of those episodes that has continued to haunt me, even after I've now recorded 90 of these episodes. Oh my goodness, yeah. Uh, um, I'd like to start with what most stood out for you as you were listening? Well, I think what most stood out for me was the intensity of this woman's love for her children. I I just think it's overwhelming what Marla did in order to ensure that her children have as regular a childhood and adolescence as they could possibly have. That's pretty stunning. Yeah. The Loving Choice, the title of the episode, which comes from John Melman's Um, description of what he and his wife Marla chose to do, the decision that they made to keep the extent of her illness from from their daughters. When I was preparing to record the initial episode, I remember thinking about all the different reasons why a choice like that might be made. And, And I was remembering something that you said to me uh, when you and I first met a number of years ago, and it's an, an ethical term, which was retrospective moral judgment. You know, in, in stories like these where where illnesses are kept either from the person themselves or from children, they seem more common back a generation or two when, uh, you know, people really believed wholeheartedly that it was just better not to know that that it was better to keep secrets and i mean that's less that's less true today from an ethical perspective where does that reside well i want to draw again a really sharp distinction between professional medical ethics and personal interpersonal ethics so you're absolutely correct that the era in which it was thought best for physicians to keep diagnoses from patients has long left us. It's now considered completely inappropriate for doctors and nurses to make judgments about what patients should know about their own health. And even in contexts in which they have to deliver devastating news, they know they have an obligation to do so. And although it can often be wrenching and sometimes deeply damaging, there really is no other alternative except to inform the person about the status of their health so that they can make whatever decisions they want to make about how they want to live their lives in the face of whatever diagnosis they've received. It's a separate set of issues, whether under what conditions and to whom the person who's received the devastating diagnosis, or at least the challenging diagnosis, which it was for Marla in the beginning, 
it sounds like from John's telling that she refused to accept that it was devastating for a very long time. And she turned out to be right. Right. But it's a it's a totally separate kind of ethics question. What people owe to those they love. About their diagnosis. Right. And that becomes deeply personal. Now, uh, it's as much a matter of, in the case of children, what is in the children's best interest to know and when than it is of anything else. And arguably, nobody was better positioned than Marla and John to make that call. It sounds like they didn't deny Marla's illness or the fact that she had the diagnosis of breast cancer. They shared part of the story. I think you said at one point in the episode, it was partial truths that they gave the girls, right? And it seems to me an eminently reasonable decision. Now, uh, when you raise the issue of retrospective moral judgment, I certainly don't feel positioned to look back at Marla and John's story and in any sense uh, criticize them for what they decided to share and what they chose not to share. And when they decided to share in the end, uh, that there really was no hope. It's heartbreaking. I think the mistake would be to generalize from their experience to what parents ought to do in all cases, in all families. It sounds from John's telling as if the strategy that they adopted was, first of all, the only thing that was possible for Marla. That's how she wanted to live her life. And also, I think, actually uh, worked well for her for her girls. It sounds as if they did well. I mean, by John's telling, they had a pretty... Uh, successful slash normal adolescence. Uh, The youngest one didn't quite make it to college before her mom passed away, but the other two did. And I don't think they ever questioned the intensity of their mother's love for them or her hopes for their future. But whether this would work in another family with other children and other parents I, I don't think you can go there, right? So in, in keeping with the, the theme of the podcast, what works as a secret for some people would be a disaster to keep secret in other families. It seems to have worked here. I hope it did. Yeah, that's such a, an important and interesting distinction. The idea that in any given family, you're dealing with a constellation of human beings who have very specific needs and psychologies and histories, and that these kinds of choices are so deeply, deeply personal. The way that John describes her profound need for her kids to see her living normally and to show them strength and resilience. And I remember when I interviewed John. And, you know, I don't, I've done so many of these interviews at this point that I often don't remember, you know, details or where I was or exactly at what point it was in my own life. But I do remember this one because I interviewed John in person uh, in New York City because I was living there because my 
own husband was sick with cancer. And, you know, we were very much in the phase that Marla so did not want to be in of people bringing lasagnas and casseroles. And the thing, the thing that John talked about, you know, with, with a sense of humor, um, but she didn't want, as he said, the pity. And she didn't want the whispers. And she wanted her daughters to be protected from that. And I, I really, I, f- I felt for them so much and, you know, for him in recounting the story so much because there is something that can happen when normalcy suddenly or, you know, the rest of the world is kind of, you know, just bopping along and, and suddenly we are on the other side of that divide that separates the lucky from the unlucky or the well from the unwell. Absolutely. And I want to underscore, because there is a risk as we talk about this, for other people listening to think this is the only way to handle a devastating diagnosis with your children. And I'm failing because I can't do it. So there's that worry I have too. Marla was who she was, right? The kind of person with a kind of strength. There's also a different kind of strength that manifests itself in bringing your, especially as they got older, children along with you. And thankfully, I have not had to do that with my own kids. I don't know which way I would play it, but I wouldn't want to judge someone who just says at a certain point, I really think it's, I can't hide it anymore. She reached that point only at the very end, Marla did, right? I would think a lot of people reach it sooner, Right, where they just say, I, I can't hide this anymore. I'm exhausted. I, I feel shitty. I uh, can't be the upbeat, perky parent I've always been. I can't mother them the way I would like to. And I don't want them to suspect or think that it's about them. Uh, and so I need to tell them why. I need to tell them why I'm not the same kind of mom I was six months ago or whenever. Right. It sounds like by John's, you know, telling that Marla was able to do this for years, right? Somehow was able for many years to conduct herself in ways that never raised worries among her children. They knew she had a disease and she was being treated and that was it, right? That's pretty amazing. But not everybody can can do this. And it's not necessarily good for every family. I guess if I had a message, it would be that. There's a related thing, too, that I wanted to bring up as I was was listening to you talk about your own experience with your husband very briefly just back there. And that is there is this a little bit, and I think John referenced it, there's a kind of voyeurism that is uh, potentially troubling, if not outright offensive, right? When people find out that someone has a serious illness, Oh, they can't wait to contribute to the meal train and they want to come visit and they want to know the details of the illness and how is it going and how is the treatment going in. No, it's not necessarily anybody's business. And a a part of it is this, I want to know because I want to make sure that I can kind of find things in my own life that will make me feel better that this isn't going to happen to me, right? So, you know, in this case, less likely with the BRCA1 and 2 gene, but how can I reassure myself that this is happening to to Marla, but it's not going to happen to me? 
It's, it's what well-meaning people who don't realize that that is what they're doing, but it, it seems like it's a kind of human impulse because it's so pervasive that, you know, that, that feeling of, you know, well, was there a family history or did this person smoke or finding a narrative that will draw a bright line between this unfortunate and terrible and tragic experience and, you know, my life and why that's not going to happen to me. Exactly. And that's exhausting for the person who's got the illness. It's like, excuse me, right? I, I'm dealing with this. It's hard enough. I don't need you prying into the details of the origins of my illness or my prognosis or any number of things. I've gone through this with friends, you know, over the years where, uh, let's say, you know, you're the trusted friend that knows the details. And then all these other people who want to know, like, so what did she tell you and why? None of your business, honestly, right? And I think some of that sounds like some of that was operating for Marla and for John. They did not want to be caught up in that dynamic. And they certainly didn't want their kids to be caught up in that kind of dynamic either. And so they, you know, they chose the path they chose. And it's it's tragic, like in the context of, you know, Marla's untimely death to say it worked for them, but it worked for them. It should also be said for people listening to us who haven't gone back and listened to that episode yet, that Marla was someone who, um, after having had her ovaries removed, after six rounds of chemotherapy, after a bilateral mastectomy, was back out running four or five days a week. And that was after her first diagnosis, considered that a speed bump, you know, and going on, you know, adventurous sports-driven vacations. And, you know, just that was the kind of particular superhuman quality that she had and that John uh, so clearly really loved in her. Yeah, you've said it so well. Uh, And I think lots of people after that first diagnosis, especially after she's done everything she can to prevent a recurrence, might reach the same conclusion about a hand, how to handle it with their kids. They're hoping it's not going to come back. There's no reason to scare the kids into thinking it might come back, right? The kids are younger then also when this begins. But when it does recur and when her prognosis becomes more dire, some people would at that point say they're older, right? And it's time to bring them in. and. Yeah, I was thinking about this as I was listening to the episode, and I appreciate that not all your readers would um, have listened the way I did, which was just before our conversation, to thinking about, to some extent, this is outside the realm of ethics and more in the realm of uh, family therapy and family support. It seems so critical. Now, maybe this couple didn't need it, but lots of couples need help, understandably trying to figure out for their families with their children at whatever ages the children are at the time when the really bad diagnosis comes through. So what are the options? How should we play this, right, with our five-year-old or our 15-year-old? And so it's in part a, a matter of sort of personal ethics. It's the sort of ethics of your family, how you've conducted your family until then. And it's also, I think, 
largely a parent or parents in this case, trying to figure out what's in the best interest of our kids in this family at this point in their lives. Yeah, no, that's so well put. And, you know, it, it, it also strikes me that it goes so against the grain of what it is to be a parent, to have to or to contemplate telling your child something so devastating. You know, all we want to do is protect our children. And it brings you right up to the edge of the awareness that, of course, we can't. You know, we we can't protect them from bad breakups. We can't protect them from a divorce if we if we get divorced. We can't protect them from our own mortality. We can't protect them from their mortality. We can't protect them from the the state of the world. And to have to make that choice, whatever that choice is, um, to tell, to not tell, whatever it is, is coming from such a primal place, no matter how we might, in, you know, intellectualize it or figure out, you know, I think John used the word um, script a couple of times. Yes. One of the things I kept thinking about when I was listening to John, realizing that the whole uh, discussion, conversation that the two of you had was around how they uh, only shared part of the truth with their girls until the very end. I kept wondering about their parents. So again, it's deeply personal. You know, what's your relationship with your your parents, your in-laws, right? Um, how close are you to them? But I would imagine you have a different relationship with, obviously, your parents than you do to your children and altogether different moral obligations. You were saying how probably the most defining characteristic of parenting, which we all fail at, is the impulse to protect our children, to make their lives perfect, right? To try to keep them from never having to eat alone in the lunchroom, right? Or never experience cyberbullying or never be excluded from the birthday party or not have anybody to go to homecoming with or whatever. We want to keep all of those kind of minor, but at the time, you know, very difficult, challenging experiences for our kids to a minimum. We want to fix it. And we certainly don't want to have to tell our kids something as awful as they're about to lose us right? No matter how old they are, but especially when they're school-aged. But with parents, it's a different kind of relationship. Their job still is to protect you. And even though you're a grown-up and an adult and you have your own kids, um, and again, every family is different. Every relationship between an adult child and their parents or their in-laws is different. But I could see parents being deeply hurt, which is something else you need to take account of, right? Deeply hurt if the diagnosis is withheld from them. And I have no idea what they did, obviously, what what John and Marla did with her. I guess they each had one surviving parent at that point or siblings. But I only bring that up to say it's not only that each family is different, it's also that the different relationships in a family. So parent to child is different than sibling to sibling, you know, spouse to spouse, partner to partner, the relationship between the adult person and her parents. They're all very different dynamics. Uh, the one between the parent and the child, especially when you're still talking about a school-age child, is so defined 
by an obligation to protect them and to advance their own interests, right? That's what you're there for. You're trying to make every single decision based on what's best for them. And there's no question that Marla and John, that's what they were doing, right? They were determining that this is what is best for their kids. Somebody else could say, this is not what's going to be best for my kid when my kid hits 16 or whatever age. Uh, it's just not going to be good for, for them because I'm not going to be myself and they need to know why. Except Mar- Marla seems that she, it would seem that she was able to exactly. be herself for a, a very long time, way longer than she was uh, given given to live when she received her t- diagnosis that her cancer had metastasized. Yeah, the thousand days. Yeah, right. a, thousand a thousand days. Thousand days and then she, she lived like something like eight or nine years. It's stunning, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So again, though, I keep like wanting to hammer this one thing home. It It's not a failing if you can't live your life like Marla did. She had a certain character and constitution and discipline, maybe in part because she was always an athlete and, and she knew exactly how she wanted things to go for her girls and she could do it. Well, it's interesting because the whole the whole family I mean that only works if it if it works in a whole family, right? And and it struck me that John and Marla were very committed to the same kind of, you know, his word was lifestyle and you know the same kind of child rearing and the and the same hopes particular hopes for the kind of track that you know each of their daughters um would be on. And they lived in a very um sort of pressure cooker kind of suburban community that I know well. Scarsdale and that whole area of, you know, Westchester, you know, bedroom community of New York City, very high octane. And, you know, not every kid is high octane. And John and Marla had three daughters, all of whom were high octane, by which I mean, you know, really sort of super achievers and incredibly athletic and inherited Marla's athleticism and, you know, very good students. And, you know, all three of them played Division I sports at great schools. Uh, You know, this is no small thing. And I think that those shared values were shared, it seems, by the whole family. We'll be right back. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease this is it your moment 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play. I want to go back to the language of retrospective moral judgment. So that term is very important in thinking about the ethics of something that has occurred in the past. And it, it addresses the question of whether all morality is relative or whether, in fact, there are some enduring features. of the moral life that can be used to think about conduct in the past as well as in the present. I think in the case of interpersonal decisions like this, family decisions, deeply unique to the person, the partners, the children, that it's um, a very different dynamic, right? And we're talking about the kinds of ethics that show up in the ethicist in the New York Times, right? It's sort of, you know, my girlfriend is lying to me. What should I do kind of thing? Uh, Here, I just would caution everybody both to avoid judging Marla and John as moral giants, right, who managed to do what most of us couldn't do or as morally flawed persons for failing to share the reality of Marla's condition with their children as the children got older and could have integrated it. I don't think this is a context in which we can look at their lives and draw any conclusions uh, about the rightness or wrongness of what they did for their family or any inferences for what we should be doing in our own families if tragedy like this strikes while we still are taking care of kids. I just don't think it works that way here. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that you can't judge or shouldn't judge um, parental behavior. In many cases, you can look at you know the way a parent is treating a child and it's totally appropriate. That is unconscionable, right? That's emotional abuse. God forbid that's physical abuse, right? No one should uh, parent a child in this way. But we have to be really circumspect because we don't know, right, what is going on. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that 
uh, I'm not alone in having been, say, in an airport lounge waiting area and seeing some mother yell at their kid and cringe, you know, and want to go in and rescue that child. And you have to hold back because you don't have any authority, any moral authority to intervene unless you really thought the child was, you know, at serious risk of uh, serious harm. So, you know, uh, Danny, one of the risks with keeping secrets, and you know this probably better than anyone is, you are my expert on all things secrets, is uh, that you are often less successful in keeping the secret than you think you are. Mm-hmm. And the people who love you, especially in the context of a close, um, clearly devoted family, right, is that the girls at some point started to get suspicious or concerned. And what I couldn't tell in listening to John was whether that was ever a really big problem, either for him and Marla or for any of their daughters. But there is that caution, right? That even though you may think that you're doing a great job keeping this secret and revealing only the parts that you think are compatible with um, your children having a, let's just call it a normal adolescence. Kids are incredibly emotionally intuitive in many cases, not all kids, but many kids, and especially about their parents. So whether it's a marriage that isn't going well or someone's health isn't going well, You just have to look out for the possibility that the children may be suspecting more than you think. And then that raises trust issues and confidence issues for the children and for the relationship. Now, I have no way of knowing from your conversation with John whether that was ever a serious concern. But I'm guessing that if you were to talk to a family therapist about how to handle a very bad diagnosis of a mother or father with adolescent children in the house that they're going to be pointing out the importance of staying attuned to the possibility that the kids are starting to get anxious, starting to um, distrust the messages that they're getting from their parents. And of course you don't want that to happen. So Nothing is straightforward and nothing is simple about the, you know, the horrible situation is, what did John say? The, uh, a shit sandwich or something? A, 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 crap, a, sandwich. Crap, a crap sandwich. Crap sandwich, yep. right. Yeah. I mean, this family was dealt a horrible, you know, a, a, a horrible set of cards, right? And there's no great way to deal with this. And and I think one of the things you've been saying, Ruth, is that there's no right way of dealing with this. I, I don't think so. I think there could be some wrong ways of doing it. I think there could be some very wrong ways of handling this uh, in ways that really make the whole dynamic and tragedy even more traumatic for the children than it already is. You definitely have a primary obligation to advance the interests of your children. Like that's your biggest moral obligation as a parent. You also have an obligation to love them, which people think is really odd to say that you could have a moral duty to love. But I believe you have a moral duty to love your children to the extent that you can, right? And also to the extent that protecting them doesn't weaken their capacity to deal with what life will hand them as they get older, right? But you also have a duty to treat your children with respect. 
especially as they get older, right? So as the as your children become middle school and uh, later adolescent, their own sense of self, their choices, their autonomy uh, matters too, right? And in respecting your children, this is where honesty comes in. You want to be honest with your children. You want to uh, give them the opportunity to make choices on their own um, within limits so that they can learn how to do that. Uh, And you want to create a relationship in which they can trust you and you can trust them. So through all of this, Marla and John had to balance the obligation to protect your children with the obligation to respect your children. I mean, at some point, Marla knows, right, it's a matter of days, it's a matter of weeks, it's a matter of months, but at some point she gives up, even with her superhuman determination. There's a point where it sounds like she recognizes there's no more beating the odds, right? And at that point, she turns from protecting them because that you can't anymore, right? To respecting them and bringing them in to the conversation. And the way that John describes the, the you know, the, the very end of Marla's life and the week before she dies, gathering each one of their daughters and almost it, it sounded like a sacred, holy thing in some way, you know, not his word at all, mine, but blessing them in a way with her hopes for them and her desires for them. And it, and he describes it as incredibly eloquent as if she was reading off a teleprompter, he said. Um, but meanwhile, she's on death's door and her eyes are closed and she's just channeling something. And um, it just seemed like there was so much pent up and stored up love and wisdom and desire there to to give her daughters everything that she had. Yeah, without doubt, without doubt. And when he got to that part of the story, I was speechless. Yeah. Trying to imagine where the strength and the wisdom came from uh, for Marla to be able to do that. People talk about leaving their children um, values testaments as opposed to, you know, last will and testaments. Here's who's, who's getting the necklace and who's getting the house kind of thing. It's um, how do you leave your children with a script for how to live your life uh, when I'm not here? And it sounds like Marla provided them with something like that. Here's what I wish for you when I'm not here anymore. And I'm guessing she was very insightful about each of her three. Each of her three girls. It's a tragedy. Ruth Faden, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this really heartbreaking and remarkable story and to and to offer your thoughts which are so valuable and I think will help so many people. Danny, you're very kind. It's totally my pleasure. I'm such a fan of your work and so grateful that you're bringing these issues to a wide audience.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 